Morning, everyone. Morning, New Life. Um, as Josh mentioned, we do glorify God in the gospel of grace here. Uh, it's great to be with you, uh, to race through this passage with you, uh, along with Josh. Um, our prayer is that today, through the service today, the grace of Jesus would touch you, uh, perhaps for the first time, if you are new uh, to the gospel, or that it would renew grace in your heart. And so that is the prayer for today. Um, Good Friday is coming up this Friday, so today is actually Palm Sunday, uh, which is very exciting, and Resurrection Sunday is next week, and so it'll be great to see you guys on Friday night for the service, if you are uh, able to make it out to this hall, and then we will be taking a short break from our Ruth series uh, for next week, so that we can have our Easter Sunday message, Um, and we'll take communion again for the first time uh, since last year, actually, since lockdown last year. Um, I've really missed doing communion with you guys, so it'll be great to uh, be able to do that again. Why don't we take a moment to pray, and then we'll get into the sermon today. Father, we turn to you, uh, the author of all time, the author of all creation, and indeed the author of our lives. And we recognize, Lord, uh, what amazing grace that you've created us in and that you lead us through. Whatever it is that we're going through as we bring ourselves here this morning, uh, whether online or in person here, we recognize, Lord, that this isn't the end of it. And we want to tell ourselves that and we want to tell our hearts this. Um, Even as we struggle through life, uh, even as we find ourselves doubting your goodness, and even as we wonder about uh, time passing by, We recognize, Lord, that you are the author of time and that you have something good in mind for us. As you empty us, Lord, would you help us to see that you are good, that you are fullness, and that you have grace enough for us, God. Help us, Lord, to look with hope, recognizing, Lord, that you're God of eternity, that our hope is not in this life only, but our hope is also in the life to come. We know that we have eternal life with you, but help us to believe it. Help us with our unbelief and help us, Lord, to see uh, what it is that you have in this gracious message from Ruth for us, God. Would you speak to us in a way that we can understand? Would you open up our hearts and help them to be fertile soil uh, that we might be able to receive your word for us today, that we might be transformed by your Holy Spirit, that we might live lives of grace. Be with us, Lord. Help us to love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now thus far through the book of Ruth, um, as mentioned by Josh, we've been going through the book of Ruth for the last three weeks. Uh, We've seen a few things. We've seen how easily uh, we can drift from God's covenant promises. And we've seen that very much through uh, Naomi's life as we've examined Naomi's life. And yet we've seen God's faithfulness in bringing Naomi and Ruth to Bethlehem. Um, Most of all, what we've seen is that God is loving the insider gone out, and God is also loving the outsider, uh, never invited in. Now today, we actually finally meet Boaz, you know, one of the big principal characters of the book of Ruth. We heard a little bit about him last week. Uh, We heard him mentioned by name by the narrator uh, as a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. So we know Elimelech um, somewhat well. You know, we saw him in the very beginning and now we actually meet uh, a distant relative of his, Boaz. Otherwise though, his identity has been kind of a mystery to us. You know, have you seen this? As we've 
uh, opened up the Book of Ruth. He's been kind of uh, in the air as a, an anonymous picture, uh, since Ruth was a widow and she was in need of a husband in this culture. You know, we've heard it said before that she's in need of a husband. Naomi makes mention of this when she's giving her impassioned speech and trying to convince Ruth along with her sister-in-law Orpah to go back to, to Moab. You know, you're in need of a husband. Why don't you get remarried? And so we know that that need is there and we know that well, hopefully this need will be uh, fulfilled by God and now we finally meet this man, this man of God. When we finally meet Boaz in Ruth 2 verse 4, the first thing we hear him say is, the Lord be with you. And his workers reply, the Lord bless you. Now, first impressions are really important. You know, I'm sure you guys recognize this as you, you know, start off new lives at uni or as you start off new careers at your job. First impressions are really important. You know, you want to get there on time, you want to look nice, you want to, you know, make a bit of a splash. And from our first impression of Boaz, we can guess that this truly is a man of noble character, as we've already heard him described as. Like, what do people normally say? What do your friends say? What does your family say when you first see them? You know, first thing that you see, first time that you see them during a the day, what do they say to you? What do you say to them? You know, hi, how are you? What if they pronounced God's blessing to you, the first thing that they say to you? What would that tell you about them? And they're a little bit unusual maybe. They're really into God, whatever that means to you. When Boaz speaks, he greets people with a blessing of the Lord. This is how we first meet him. The Lord bless you. You know, he surely honors God with the work of his hands and his workers respect him for it. We read in verses five to seven that Boaz notices this unfamiliar uh, figure working in the field. You know, he knows his workers pretty well. If he can just look out at the field and see, there's someone there that I don't recognize. She's clearly different, okay? We don't really know exactly what the Moabites might have looked like compared to the Israelites, but she must have been different in some way. And so Boaz asks his workers, whose young woman is this? Where does she fit into society, in other words? And the workers reply that Ruth is the foreign woman that you've heard of. She's the Moabite, the outsider. Do you notice that they speak with a, a kind of a familiarity about Ruth? You know, it's kind of assumed, Boaz, you know who this is. She's that foreign woman that you heard about. Everyone in town must have already heard about this foreigner who's come back with Naomi by this point, this Moabite woman. And so surely, Boaz knows about her as well. She's an outsider. She doesn't really fit in here amongst us kind, respectable Israelite folk. But she's been working pretty hard all day. Hasn't really taken breaks in the hot sun except for one moment. And Boaz, he shows that he certainly heard of this outsider, Ruth. But what does he do? He doesn't just leave it at that. He talks to her. He's the first person, if you've noticed, outside of Naomi to actually talk to Ruth in the book of Ruth. No one else is bothered. 
And not only this, but he speaks to her as a real person with a real identity, saying, listen, my daughter. We read in verses eight to nine, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. What do we know so far about Ruth? About this woman, Ruth? What do we know so far? And how she fits in around Bethlehem? She's an outsider. People have ignored her very existence to her face. Like she shows up, they don't even talk about her. It's just, you know, Stonewall. They don't even pretend that she's there. What do we know about Boaz then? Ruth 2 verse 1, the opening of this chapter has said, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. He's a landowner. He must have some means, right? He's a prominent man. People know him. He's of noble character. These are two people that come from very different parts of town. They belong to very, very different parts of Bethlehem. And yet, despite the difference between them, despite coming from two different worlds, Boaz speaks to her, even associating himself with her by addressing her as my daughter. You're not the Moabitess around here. You're not the outsider around here. He extends humanity to her and gives the outsider dignity. Now, Naomi has been the only one to speak to Ruth since Moab, since her homeland. And you can imagine what a lonely journey this is. She's just entered into Bethlehem, no one's talking to her. She goes and speaks to the workers, saying, can I work in the fields here? Can I just you know, grab some grains? They don't say anything. It's Naomi hasn't done anything, even when she's spoken to Ruth, to shatter the reality that she's an outsider. She's been silent, she's been terse, she's just kind of let her exist. Boaz's words are like the sun on your skin after months of rain. We've experienced this, right, in Sydney? It's the first kindness offered to Ruth since she's left her family, her friends, everything that she knows in her homeland of Moab. It's the first kindness. Boaz takes it a step further, though. Verses 11, well, Boaz answered her, everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. May the Lord reward you. May you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel. It's like a double pronouncement of the blessing of God. What's happening here? It's very reminiscent of how we were first introduced to Boaz, this chapter, with the greeting to his workers. This is inclusion of the outsider. The people of Bethlehem so far don't want anything to do with her. We've seen this. 
ignoring her to her face, but talking about her behind her back. I'm sure some of us have experienced this, depending on what school we went to. Whereas Naomi told her, go back to your own gods in Moab, Boaz blesses Ruth and seeks God's favor upon her. The way he speaks, he speaks as though Ruth is already a member of this covenant community, even though she's an outsider. He is indeed a man of noble character, and we can see this. He's one who knows what it means to seek out good for others. One who's not only blessed, but knows how to be a blessing as well. Now notice this about Boaz though. He's not just all talk. In the book of James, it tells us, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs? What good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Maybe he could have just said to himself that he'd done a good thing, and he had. He'd done a very nice thing. Perhaps he could have just ended it with this verbal blessing that he's given her, you know, twice. Perhaps he could have just left it with allowing Ruth to gather from his field that he owned. That's very nice of him. It's commanded by the law. But Boaz then invites her to eat with him and his workers. He demolishes any sort of walls or gaps that might exist between the two of them. Like, we're not of different classes here. You're not an outsider to me. Let me bring you in so you can eat with me. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. Now most of us don't know this feeling because we're too well fed. Okay, I know this because to most of us, leftovers are more of a burden than a blessing. Okay, like we went to a restaurant and you know, they gave us leftovers and it felt like, oh, where are we gonna put this in the refrigerator? And you know that you're too well fed if you're to that point. But Ruth eats enough to be satisfied and to have some left over. And you can imagine that for Ruth, she has to gather grain in this place in order to have anything to eat. She had to enter into very dangerous work in order to try and have enough food for herself and Naomi, her mother-in-law. This is a moment of overflowing joy. She can have enough to eat and be satisfied. And she can have enough to have some left over to take home. What a joy that she can present this to her mother-in-law. Inclusion of the outsider isn't just a verbal thing. That's not what we're about. It's an inclusion into the blessings of the, that the members of the covenant community can experience. Inclusion means that you extend blessings upon people, actual blessings, not just verbal. Boaz lets Ruth momentarily forget her outsider status when she sits down to eat with, her, with them. As she sits down and eats with him and his workers, like when she, the next verse is, when she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, 
Let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. Like, can you imagine if your boss said, said this to you, like you're working and he says, be a little bit careless. Leave it on the ground. Like you're gathering all this stuff, leave some on the ground. Even as she gets back to work, Boaz commands his workers to be intentionally careless with their work, just so that Ruth would have a little bit more to take home with her, a little bit more to live with. This is generosity, giving to those in need, giving to those who can never repay. Last week, we saw that just because something is the law, it doesn't mean that everyone follows it. But in Boaz, we see the opposite principle at work. We see someone who goes far beyond just the law in order to care for the poor outsider, in order to bring the outsider in. He goes far beyond the bare minimum. So what about us then, new life? And this has to be the question as we read this. We're those that say that we follow Christ. We talk about the gospel of grace every single week. Christ has welcomed us in in a greater way than we could ever ask for or imagine. We can never repay his grace. All we've got is the opposite. We've got sin. God included outsiders like us, brought us in, sinners like us, despite our history of rebellion. Despite what anyone else would think of us, he brought us near. And through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus, he extends the invitation for us Ruths to join him at his table. Can we now welcome the way that Boaz does, the way that Jesus does? These are the people, the outsiders, that seem a little bit unusual to us. We might feel it when we're at church. We might feel it when we're at work. We might feel it with our own family members. They're a little bit frustrating. They're a little bit outside the norm for our community. And quite often we can miss outsiders like this, even in our community here at church. Why? Because we gravitate naturally towards those that we feel more comfortable with, that are more like us. It's natural. But these are the people who God uses, who God uses to truly develop in us, to truly grow us in our generosity and love. If you've ever prayed, God, help me to grow, and he's brought these people into your life, he's answered. Ruth 2, 17 to 18. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain, and went into the town where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Due to Boaz's generosity, Ruth ends up bringing home somewhere between 13 to 23 kilograms of grain. You can see here, like, she's carrying all this grain, and it's like three Jonases. You know, it's very heavy, okay? Naomi is amazed at this bounty. It's several weeks' worth of food. And for the rest of the chapter, we see a very different Naomi to the one that we've seen thus far. We've seen Naomi until now, but suddenly it's like, I don't even recognize her. She's definitely not Marah. She's, you know, Naomi. All of a sudden, Naomi is pronouncing blessings and speaking sweetly. That's what Naomi means, sweet. 
her heart has begun to soften towards God and she begins to see the evidence of his grace towards her. Verse 20, then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Naomi can now see the kindness or the covenant faithfulness of God through Boaz to the living and the dead. Now this word translated as kindness for us. This is the Hebrew word, you might have heard this before, chesed, we've talked about this before. You might remember it from this weird guttural sound that I have to make, which it might ring a bell for you if you were with us in September last year, okay? We defined it last year saying that in English there wasn't an exact translation for this faithful covenant love of God. It's only a partial translation. That's why we have things like compassion, loving kindness, loyal love, mercy in various places throughout the Bible, right? Here in Ruth, we see it as translated as kindness, but as we did last year, we'll call it covenant love to try to get a little bit closer to the actual meaning. Naomi can now see the covenant love of God. And she can now see that God wasn't out to get her. He wasn't out to get revenge on her despite her history of sin and rebellion. And as she begins to see God's covenant love, she's able to look beyond herself at Ruth as well. Here, for the first time, Ruth is finally included in Naomi's family. Do you see it? As Naomi declares that Boaz is one of our family redeemers. Until now, Naomi's been telling Ruth, just go home. Go back to Moab. What are you doing? I don't want you here with me in Bethlehem. You're another mouth to feed. I don't even want to go in the fields myself. But here she says, one of our family redeemers. Covenant love should beget covenant love. Now what does Naomi mean that Boaz is one of our family redeemers? Okay, family redeemers are not really a thing that we have in current day society. Similar to what we saw last week when we talked about the provisions for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the resident foreigner. Okay, this law that existed within you know, Bethlehem, within Israel. God has made provisions for families through the kinsman redeemer or the family redeemer, as we see it here. Now this part of the law was created for those that fell on hard times, okay? We've seen it many times throughout the Bible, if you've read through the Bible before. All of Israel goes into hard times. And this is hard times for Israel right now in the time of Judges. And he does this so that the family wouldn't just disappear, like we've seen for Naomi's family in Moab. When they left the covenant promise in Moab, their family just disappeared. They were dead and buried. We don't hear about them anymore. Now we won't turn there now, but there's a pair of uh, passages in Leviticus 25. You can look at this for yourself later. We see how the family redeemer was legally obligated to buy back family members from slavery. If they ever fell into crippling debt and had to sell themselves into slavery to meet the requirements of that debt, Family redeemers were required by law, buy back your family members. In Deuteronomy 25, we see very similarly how under certain circumstances, the family redeemer must marry the widow of his brother. If his brother were ever to die so that they can raise up a child together, you know, if they had died childless, in that family member's name, in that brother's name, 
not for themselves, just so that the family wouldn't disappear into anonymity. Now, neither of these situations, interestingly, seem to cover Naomi and Ruth's specific circumstance here. Like, you don't hear Boaz was Elimelech's brother, just as distant relative. Even more, the law didn't say anything about outsiders to the covenant. Ruth is an outsider still. She has a transplant here. She's a foreigner. And she had illegally married into this family by Israelite law. There's no law saying that a family redeemer had any sort of obligation towards them. So why does Naomi bring this up then? I mean, we've seen so far that Naomi isn't that well-versed in the law. She's not super familiar with things, or if she is, she just ignores it outright and moves her family to Moab. Naomi might not have a strong understanding of this law, or maybe there was some other sort of obligation that she's thinking about, that she's plotting in her head very quietly. But everything to this point that we've seen of Boaz tells us he's someone who isn't very concerned with just the bare minimum. We've talked about this right, like already. He's not just concerned with what he's required to do under the law. Here is someone who's been changed by the grace of God to the point that he could live out grace. He wants to extend grace to others, not just his workers, not just his female workers that are familiar to him, but to this perfect stranger, Ruth, an outsider, a Moabite. The fruit of God's love was evident in his life. So Boaz's heart overflows in covenant love to those around him. This covenant love, this compassion, this loving kindness, this loyal love, this chesed, this is what we as Christians should be marked by. Like we shouldn't be looking at Boaz thinking this is unusual. We should be thinking he could very well be a member of New Life. This is what we're known for. New Life, as we continue to grow in our culture of grace renewal that we've started talking about this year, we see and we speak of the gospel of grace. We're reminded of God's covenant love and we're changed in order to live out this covenant love. There has to be an outflow. There has to be. We're those that renew grace in those around us, going far beyond the bare minimum, beyond obligation. And we get there through repentance. We see this in verses 22 to 23. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, my daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Like if you've got a highlighter or a pen, highlight that, another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. How does repentance fit in here? Like when you read this at first, you might not see it, but Naomi encourages Ruth to listen to what Boaz said, to stay in this field of promise, to not go into some other field. Does this sound familiar to you? Like this is precisely what Naomi and Elimelech did when the book of Ruth started. Despite God's consistent past of faithfulness, despite the fact that his continued promises 
promised to provide for his people, even in the midst of famine, if only they would turn back to him. What do they do? Naomi and Elimelech, they leave the fields of Bethlehem, the fields of promise, and go to the fields of Moab. Just as all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they too turn away. Now it's not verbalized, but Naomi's repentance is evident. Do you see it? Because she warns Ruth, don't make the same mistakes I did. You've seen it firsthand. Your husband is dead. My son is dead. Both my sons are dead. Naomi, in her repentance, disciples her daughter-in-law to not follow in her pattern of sin, in Israel's pattern of sin, which is very evident during the time of the judges. We too, in our repentance, can disciple others. No one needs to follow our cycles of sin so that we can break cycles of sin in our community as well. Now the chapter finishes here by telling us that Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. Like what a strange sentence to end the chapter on. We know that they're living together. They've been living together this whole time. But in other words, the subtext here, she's still husbandless in this society where as a woman, as a widow, she really needs a husband to survive. Naomi can't survive on her own. It's difficult to make it without a husband in this society. And the end of the chapter leaves this question just hanging in the air. What's God going to do next? He's been faithful all this time. Surely he'll be faithful. He's just introduced Boaz. What's God going to do next? Now, all throughout this chapter and all throughout the book of Ruth, tension's been increasing. Okay, and we might not see it at first, but time has been quietly marching on in the background. If you just read the Bible on kind of a cursory reading, if you just open it up and just kind of look through it, you kind of think everything's just happening at once. You know, like Ruth's husband dies, they move to Bethlehem, and then suddenly there's Boaz. Wow, what an eventful hour or so, right? That's what we think or that it's in some vague past. But we know from week one of our sermon series that in the background of Bethlehem, there's been this pendulum swinging. Okay, we talked about this in week one. The people of God sin, God's judgment comes upon their sin, the people of God repent, and then the blessing of God comes upon his people. It doesn't come in just one day. None of this is taking place in a vacuum. It's happening in real time. And so you can imagine, this is happening over lifetimes. When Naomi and Ruth arrive back in Bethlehem at the end of chapter one, we're told that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Remember this, it's at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the beginning of the year in the Jewish calendar. Okay, if you've ever read through the first part, even if you have read through it, you probably, we've probably all missed it, okay? It's the perfect time for a fresh start if it's a new year. Think about what we all do at the beginning of the new year. What do we do? We make resolutions. You know, it usually has to do with diets or some other thing. But here, these people have a chance for a fresh start. Now, at the end of chapter two, we're told it's the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. Time has passed. 
often we don't see the advance of time happening until we're already several steps ahead of where we thought we would be. Do you guys agree with this? But there it is. Tick-tock, it's moving on in the background. Time is moving. Seven weeks had passed since Ruth first made her way into Bethlehem. That's the time of the harvest. And now, it's time for the festival of first fruits. This is what we hear from the Jewish calendar, and certainly they've seen the first fruits of God's blessing upon them. And yet, in the midst of this time, as time ticks by, the fullness of God's plan is not yet evident to them. Just the first fruits. They've run into Boaz. Ruth has run into Boaz in his field. He's very nice to her, invites her to eat with him, and they part ways. Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. And certainly, as the harvest time ends, suddenly the time when she can just naturally run into Boaz is coming to an end as well. You know, you don't want to be too keen, right? Like, you don't want to... But the Kairos timing that we talked about in our last sermon series, we're aware of only what we can see, just the physical evidence in front of us, but God has an appointed time and a season for all things. Like Naomi, we can get stuck in the day-to-day drudgery. You know, we often say, like, man, I'm tired of life. I'm sick of it. I'm just struggling through life. I'm just trying to survive. It's hard enough just to survive, and before we know it, a lot of time has passed, and we're not where we want to be. We struggle to see God's faithfulness in these times, and we struggle to make it past the front door of Christianity. We can hardly enter in. We stand there in the doorway thinking, God's invited me in, but what's the point? We think we'll never live truly grace-filled lives. But what do we see here in the book of Ruth? God is the God who welcomes in the outsider who was never invited in. But he's also the God who welcomes back the insider who's gone out. He forgives the insider who's gone out. He loves the insider who's gone out. His covenant love never stops, never fails. Naomi perhaps didn't remember the goodness of God in all of his past actions. She's had a rough life. For us, we have our Bibles in little devices in our pockets, in the books that we carry, and they record this incredible history of God's faithfulness, his patience with all of his children who constantly rebel against him. It reminds us that we can know that he goes far above and beyond what's obligated, kind of like Boaz. He goes beyond the bare minimum. If it was up to the law, we'd all be dead. He goes far beyond the bare minimum, even to the point that he gives his own son, that we might have a way back to him. Romans 8 reads this, not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. What can you do in the present day to live as a Christian, as a faithful Christian? 
Let's start with what Naomi reminds Ruth to do at the end of this chapter here. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for your daily bread. These are the fields of promise instead of looking to other things to feed you. You will be tempted to doubt that God will provide. It'll come every day, subtly sometimes, in your face other times. Sometimes you'll find that you're just in despair, much like Naomi, and you'll be tempted to turn away from the bread of life of Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. Even in the midst of this, even when you find yourself turning away, even when you find yourself doubting your faith, your strength of faith, your salvation, this is the good news, your salvation and your sanctification don't depend upon you. They were never dependent upon you. If they were, we wouldn't meet the bare minimum requirements of the law. Instead, they depend on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let that give you hope again today. Turn to the fields of promise again today. Let it light the fire of your heart by the glory of his grace as you look upon his covenant love. Let not your heart be troubled, but turn your eyes upon him for what he's done and what awaits you in God's appointed time. How about we pray together? Father, as we get together as a bunch of finite creatures who are tossed to and fro by the ebb and flow of time, we turn to you, the author of all time. We turn to you who knows what comes in appointed time, who knows not only the beginning but also the end, and who never leaves us in the middle either. We know that we can trust you. We see very well your faithful covenant love for us in the past. We see the evidence of it in your covenant love towards your people throughout history in the Bible. And it's in this that we can place hope, knowing that in Ruth's future, in Naomi's future, Jesus Christ was still yet to come. He stands upon the cross in our past and amazingly in our past he was lowered from the cross into the grave and raised from the grave to eternal life and now we know in the present that he sits at your right hand interceding on our behalf if his work if his person was good enough for, for us in the past, for all of our sins in the past, we know that his intercession is good enough for us now, for all of our present sins, all of our future ones as well. You cover over us, and we know that we have the hope of glory, of everlasting life with you. Help us, Lord, not to be pitiable creatures, thinking only about our present day. But help us, Lord, to look to the future of eternality, of endless
this life and love with you. Fill us once again with the hope of your fields of promise and help us, Lord, not to leave these fields of promise, but let us feed from the bread of life in this field. Let us turn to Jesus Christ once again for our hope, for our glory, for our good. We know, Lord, that Jesus Christ is our hope yesterday, today, and forever in this life and the one to come. We love you, Lord, and we thank you.